Self-Decode is the world's first precision health platform that frees you from the generic solutions of traditional healthcare and puts control back in your hands. Using science-backed research and AI-driven algorithms, Self-Decode gives you personalized diet, supplement, and lifestyle suggestions based on your body's blueprint, your DNA. Get started for free with an existing DNA file or order a DNA kit at 25% off with the code GENIUS. Start optimizing your health today at selfdecode.com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1%. A real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius Podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a really great uh, guest today, Arthur Santiotis. He's an adjunct senior fellow, uh, part of the Adelaide Medical School on the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences at the University of Adelaide, Australia, although he is in Poland. So we're going to talk about his background. Uh, He's a real polymath. Uh, The conversation may go all over the place here, but I think it'll be a good one. So welcome, Arthur. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much for welcoming me to your podcast. Also, we can add that I have been, I'm presently working at the Ludwig Hertzfeld Institute of Immunology and Experimental Therapy, Polish Academy of Sciences uh, in Wroclaw, Poland. Okay, very good. So to give people an idea of um, how varied your interests are, Arthur, what's your background? You know, guide us through your journey up until now. Well, back in the Stone Age, Richard, I, I started off as a social anthropologist, or in the United States, they often call them cultural anthropologists. I did my PhD where I looked into the shamanic complex of North Indian Sufis, who are also healers, and I got interested in altered states of consciousness and how this can be triggered uh, by ritual behavior, etc. Later on, I became increasingly more interested in neuroscience and my background in uh, social anthropology and medical anthropology piqued my interest for further studies into the medical sciences. Uh, From about 2007 onwards, I changed my direction, my career path. I 
became more and more interested in the medical sciences. And I entered into the Adelaide Medical School via Professor Marci Henneberg, who uh, became a close colleague and a mentor. And with Marci, we did and continue to do lots and lots of papers in many areas of evolution, brain, mind, uh, etc. And mm. uh, for the last several years, I've been teaching in clinical anatomy, neuroanatomy in different places in uh, the Middle East and here in Europe, as well as in South Australia, where I was born. So I could work together. My very background means that I could integrate various disciplines, anthropology, philosophy, uh, medical science, evolutionary science. And it, uh, it's given me a greater scope to see the same thing from different angles. You know, um, Stephen Pinker. Yeah, that, that, that's what I wanted to ask you is, since you have such a wide perspective, how do you feel like that shaped your ability to understand, you know, whatever topic you're applying your mind to? Uh, it just gives me greater thinking or should I say greater lateral ability, you know, thinking outside the square. I, Steven Pinker once said, the more you read in different di disciplines, the smarter you become. And I agree with uh, Stephen on that point. Uh, you know, we're in an age now where people become highly specialised. This is kind of new. Up until a couple of generations ago, particularly here in Europe, a lot of the scholars here were polymaths. You know, they, they knew so much stuff. They were multilingual. They could talk about philosophy. They could talk about mathematics. They could talk about political science. Uh, this was the norm. Now it's rather the exception. It's not encouraged. It's interesting, in, at least in Europe, and I may be totally mistaken, but it seems like hundreds of years ago, people might have had to be specialized in their daily life, like a blacksmith would probably have to work all day and night as a blacksmith and really only know that small world. Someone else that was a farmer, et cetera. And then at some point, I guess people had enough food and leisure and all that to be able to be polymath. But the weird thing is now is people are, again, are specializing, you know, for various other reasons. So do you think they've gone through this down, up, down cycle? Yeah, as it's, it's always the case in human history. I mean, we've got such a huge plethora now of knowledge coming in, particularly in medicine and the medical sciences. Uh, I mean, you could you can be reading all these thousands and thousands of papers which are coming out so quickly. You know, you could be reading for 10 lifetimes. This is the difference. The, the huge amount of medicine which is coming out now is kaleidoscopic. I mean, 100 years ago, let's go back to the Nick, the American series, the Nick set in the Knickerbocker Hospital, New York, around 1900. Most of the knowledge which medicos had, physicians had at that time, was fundamentally anatomy. It wasn't microbiology. It wasn't biochemistry, which medical students ha have to learn now. Uh, it was basically anatomy. I mean, if you knew good anatomy, then you could be a, a, a physician. That's out of the question now. You've got to know lots of other areas of medical science and it's huge nothing like it as it was even a hundred years ago so mm. and now with the new biotechnologies coming into being so much more we have to increase our knowledge so people are being forced to specialize interesting well offline we were talking about uh, nootropics and how they may or may not be efficacious would it be okay if we turn to that for a subject 
Because sure. it seems like you have some insight into there that I haven't heard. Well, um, both Marchi and I, we've been writing on this for at least a decade. And a lot of other scholars have also been writing on it, particularly uh, uh, the anthropologist Michael Winkleman. Michael has been writing on this area of shamanism and the taking of plants, you know, for years and years. Uh, to break it down, humans and other animals like taking substances which get them off their faces. Basically that various animals will choose specific types of plants because it provides them with a kind of trip. Hallucinogenic substances, you know, birds, gorillas, uh, cows, the famous, the famous plague which happened in the United States in the 19th century where cows were, t- were eating loco weed and they were getting off their faces. And uh, this became a real big problem. Well, one, one quick, uh, seems one quick to be anecdote, anecdote, Arthur, if I may, one quick anecdote. Um, my wife is from South Africa and they have a mapani tree and the fruits fall and ferment and the monkeys, they've seen them eat the fruits and they get drunk and they fall all over the place. So it's, again, I guess, another example of this. Absolutely. I mean, I've got a beautiful photograph of a moose, uh, of a moose w- which is eaten probably some fermented uh, fruits from the ground and, and, and the, the moose is stuck in a tree, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it, we've got so this predilection towards taking these substances even goes to the arthropods, the insects. You know, we can go back a billion years. It seems like we've got these similar pathways from insects to uh, mammals, reptiles, going back to when our ancestors were microbes. And, uh, you know, for example, if you, you put a cocaine, or should I say an opiate, to a fly, it will basically fall off the wall. It will behave very similar to how humans behave like. So these, we've got very, very similar pathways for assimilating these substances. And it's a very, very old phylogeny going back hundreds of millions of years. Saying that, what humans did, it seems that we started to take more of these substances, you know, over the last several hundred thousand years, perhaps, to the point that, as Michael Winkleman says, that these substances, they were, they became part of our evolution. For example, humans can metabolize the MP3Y gene very well. And what is that for? Which means that metabolizing pharmacological substances like hallucinogenic substances. Now, that means that we co-evolved for such a long time with these hallucinogenic substances in the natural forms that we actually ended up having a gene for metabolizing these substances. I don't believe that the other great apes have such a really, really good ability uh, for metabolizing these substances because we've probably been doing it for a long, long period of time, of evolutionary time. And Michael basically says that we took these for so long that they probably triggered or enhanced cognitive evolution in the human species, which is a, which is a fascinating insight. So, um, so the taking of psychedelics 
I mean, those kind of drugs, again, it's, I didn't realize that it, it happens across so many different creatures, insects, uh, you know, all kinds of animals. It's amazing. And people have the same predilection, as you said. Yeah, I mean, Bonignon, in her, uh, one of her papers many years ago, uh, she wrote that, you know, over 400 societies still engage in some altered states of consciousness, whether it's through ritual behavior or taking of substances, psychedelics or whatever, or, or both. So it's still very, very popular uh, throughout the planet. Uh, what about nootropics versus psychedelics? What's the experience with that? That's only humans, and I guess only recently, right? Well, this term nootropic, it's interesting. You know, it comes from the, if we break it, let's break it down. Nus, nus in my people's language means mark, means to, to feed, to feed or to make stronger. This nootropic term was created by a guy called Gugia in 1972. And he's the first one who's using this term, nootropics. But the term in itself is a misnomer, Richard. We do not have or we do not know of any substance which can actually make us smarter. There are no smart drugs. Not at all. Not at all. People think it's making them smarter, these drugs, you know, particular amphetamines, for example. But um, Yeah, why do do people um, think that? I I really don't know. Maybe... Maybe like, what are they experiencing that, that makes them think that? Like, have you ever taken um, Adderall? What have you experienced of so? Well, personally, I haven't taken any of those substances because um, I always liked training. You know, um, if you train, you've got your own little cocktail of psychedelic substances in your brain. If you meditate or if you train, you do a lot of physical exercise, you create encephalins and endorphins, which from a molecular level are similar to the substances which we like to take, cocaine, heroin, exact. So uh, Marchi and I, we basically wrote many years ago that you don't need to take these substances. You can just exercise or you can meditate and, you know, your brain can create these. You know, we've got our own little drug factory in our brains, and it's good for you. You know, these substances in our brains uh, protect our brains. Um, they feed our brains, and, uh, you know, they're much, much safer than taking any kind of external pharmacological substance. Well, I've, I've never heard of someone meditating to sharpen their mind or do any other activity besides taking a drug. But, you know, what kind of protocols have you seen people engage in? What's the effect on them? Do they say, wow, my, my mind's clearer and sharper? Or, like, what have you seen? Well, my discussions with people over the years, it depends on the traditions. In India, there's lots of these traditions. There are many meditational practices. But, you know, with the, with the Sufis of North India, you know, being very religious people, when they did do their meditational practices, it was a way of, getting close to the saints or to God. So there was this layer of religiosity. Their practices weren't meant to make them smarter, or that wasn't the focus. The focus was to create stronger communication between the Sufi and the divine world. Um, Saying that, uh, what meditation does do, as well as exercise, is it may not make you smarter, 
in the sense of, you know, increasing your cognitive capacity, but it seems to work in altering neural hormonal regulation in your brain, which can lead to less stress hormones, greater endocannabinoids, which leads to better circulation to your brain. Because we know that stress hormones devastate parts of the brain. And if you increase your endocannabinoids when you're relaxed and calm, more circulation can go to those brain cells. So in that way, those cells, those neurons get fed more. You know, they just get nourished more. And the same with exercise. You know, the best memory tool for students is not consistently to memorize things. It's just go and have a good run or a good walk. Get that blood to your brain. And in that way, the brain is nourished, it's protected, and oftentimes it will prevent the onset of neurodegenerative diseases, particularly in a later part of, in life. So, what would, what would be, um, so if I was going to study for a test or I just wanted to learn material, should I, for instance, go for a run and then study or study and then go for a run? Like, is, has anyone characterized what kind of protocols seem to be the most helpful? I don't think we need to be so stringent i mean horses for courses as we say in australian it doesn't matter whether you're having you know the medicine before or after in this case what's important is that you get up and and do some exercise you know humans evolved to exercise not to make them look good but uh in our species we were evolved to have very high physical activity levels and if you look at the PAL levels uh, in chimps or orangutans or gorillas, they don't move very much in comparison to us. They don't move very much at all because they've got big bodies like us, but they don't need to move a lot. Our evolution meant that we became uh, slowly, slowly bipedal and we changed from becoming forest foragers to hunting. And hunting required devastating changes in our bodies i mean really really huge changes to our brains to our morphology and to our thermoregulation but what happened as often happens in evolution is that exercise became used to create all kinds of brain growth factors like bdnf brain derived growth factor and other factors which are actually neuroprotective so we kind of uh, we became more and more increasingly dependent on exercise to prevent our brains from falling to pieces. And how do we know this? We know this from animal models. For example, you know, uh, mice. Um, if mice are exercising, they're creating this BDNF. If they don't exercise, then their brains just fall to pieces, basically. And what happens in depression, clinical depression, is people are not creating enough BDNF because they're not exercising. So, you know, exercising became essential for humans in order to feed our brains, to protect our brains. And this probably also led to us having greater and greater cognitive abilities. And this isn't discussed very much, this aspect of movement. Self-decode has taken the guesswork out of wellness. By analyzing your genes, lab tests, and lifestyle data, Self-Decode provides the most holistic and personalized plan for optimal health. They're giving our listeners 25% off new DNA kits 
with the code GENIUS, where you can get started free if you have an existing DNA file. Visit selfdecode.com to learn more. I mean, for people that are, you know, really into their health, obviously movement is critical, but haven't heard anyone discuss it from a, a scientific point of view, meaning that, um, you know, movement and exercise is, is necessary for proper cognition and proper mood, etc. And also it's brain protective. It protects the brain. It does. Or, and you must exercise. You know, exercise, as I said, isn't going to the gym and looking good. Exercise is essential to protect your brain. So how do you know that um, people that take different nootropics, it does nothing for them? Like, how was that figured out? We have, there's not one study which I've ever seen which has basically said that if you take this substance, you are going to become really, really smart. Now, people may perceive that they're getting smarter, but that's a perception, that is. I mean, if you, if you took a group of people, let's say 10 people, and you gave them all kinds of drugs, for example, Ritalin. Uh, Ritalin's been really, really popular uh, in, in the States. Ritalin's the brand name for methylphenidate. Now, if you took those people and you gave them Ritalin for five years, what would probably happen is that they would become addicted to it. But if they, they wouldn't be increasing in their IQ, for example, not at all. You know, it doesn't, you know, just taking a substance by itself isn't going to improve your cognitive abilities. What these substances do, like Ritalin or Modafinil, which a lot of American students, university students take, what they do is they make you more alert and they improve your mental focus, which means that you can read and study for longer periods of time. So, you know, they improve vigilance. And this is why amphetamines were also being used by World War II pilots. You know, they, they had long periods where they couldn't sleep. So they would be taking amphetamines, which made them more vigilant. You know, it prevented them from falling to sleep on the job. Now, the difference here is that we mustn't confuse intelligence with better mental focus and alertness. And I think this is what has been happening. Well, I mean, with the um, the destruction of focus, you know, from social media and smartphones and, you know, constant, I don't know, attention grabbing alerts and notifications, maybe there is a role for not only just exercising, but obviously restoring focus. So, I mean, in my mind, what's, what's coming together is what would be like an ideal protocol, let's say, if you wanted to, I don't know, get some work done, if you wanted to study something, if you wanted to really learn something. So it sounds like exercise, but maybe there would also be another type of exercise to help you focus before you start or keep you focused. So naturally, okay. like what are, what are some ways to optimize your learning, let's say? Okay. In our book, The Dynamic Human, which we, Machi Henneberg and I wrote um, six years ago, where we're talking about past, present and future evolution of the human species, I've got a section in it called Being Like Greeks. And the Greeks, as other cultures, the ancient, we're talking about ancient Greeks here, not modern Greeks. The, the Greeks in the time of Aristotle and Plato, if you looked at the curriculum, the, the students would be doing gymnastics in the morning and wrestling and uh, all kinds of uh, track and field events. And then in the afternoon, they were doing mathematics, philosophy, etc., all the mind stuff. The Greeks believed, like the Chinese, that there was a strong mind-body link-up 
that they were basically one and that a strong body aided a disciplined mind. And actually, they were right on. We know that there is a strong link between movement and, and intelligence, uh, particularly people who have got kinesthetic intelligence. So I would tell, and I tell my students, back to the basics, sleep, which is important, drink water, uh, have a good diet, move, and have good and foster good social relationships. Also, I would encourage younger people to get off their mobile phones when reading and read, start reading from books again. We know from uh, some studies that there's greater memory retentiveness when you're actually reading from a book rather than reading from a screen. And why is that? Because you're using more of your brain. You know, when you pick up a book, you're using not only your visual sense, but also your tactile sense. And sometimes, you know, if it's an old book, you can smell it. And so you're using also your olfactory sense. Uh, All of this is missing when you're reading just on the screen. So uh, when you're reading from books, and I encourage younger people to start reading from books again, or to that will be that just increases the amount of cortical engagement and it enhances your ability to remember things. So those kinds of those kinds of things, you know, exercise in your life, make it daily. It doesn't have to be fanatical. Just do some kind of movement, you know, read more from physical books uh, if you can. This is a problem because because books are made of paper which come from trees. So there's an ecological aspect from there. One tidbit that I, I heard from um, a woman that was working on a product to help soothe people that have blocked tear ducts, is she said that uh, she she read in the literature that when people look at screens, their blink rate slows down significantly, which leads to you know the eyes not clearing properly, the tears, etc., lubricating as well. You know, because when you blink your eye, it's like windshield That's wipers coming down. So I wonder how that ties yeah. into feeling more tired when you read on a screen or, you know, not getting the proper effect that you would get from a book. The screens usually are also emitting low-level type of radiation. Remember that humans have only been reading for a couple of thousand years. And up until recently, very few humans had the ability to read. For example, in Europe, uh, only the ecclesiastical and aristocratic classes could read. So the majority of people could not read. So reading is kind of new to the eye. And uh, reading from screens is even newer. And that's why we've got problems. That's why we, a lot of us wear glasses. Uh, in China hmm. now, we can have maybe a third to half of young people who have to wear glasses, which is hmm. interesting because of these new kinds of habits. Our eyes did not really evolve uh, to read from books and reading small letters this is kind of new but in terms of this study i would probably suggest that also this low level emission of radiation and is also a culprit for making you tired moreover a lot of screens are quite bright which books are books don't have this brightness you know they don't have little portable lights inside them but screens do you know they're kind of bright and that probably also causes problems with your circadian rhythms, particularly if you're working late at night with with screens, which are very bright. Okay. So in terms of uh, cognition and optimizing your cognition, 
have you spent much time in that area or you've moved on to other areas of cognition that have fascinated you? Maybe we can delve into just a little bit of, uh, you know, what other area you've been working on. Well, I, I've been interested, uh, God, I've been interested in everything. Time is so short, as you would know. I'm interested in altered states of consciousness and what is going on with the human brain presently and what may happen in the future. And uh, at this time in our evolution, right now in 2022, we're at a crossroads. I'm not the first one to say that. We are at a crossroads ecologically, politically, philosophically, morally. A lot of great thinkers have been discussing this. But I think we're heading into uncharted waters in regards to the human brain. Uh, I'm interested in the problems which we're encountering at the present time because of our lifestyles. Uh, in the paper which was just published with Robert Benajic and Marci Henneberg, we're basically saying, what is it about modern humans? Why are we having more mental problems? Why are there more mental disorders in modern human beings? And, and what does this I mean, what does this suggest for our future tra- trajectory? So basically, what is being occurring is we've got really, really bad lifestyles at the present time. In comparison to how humans lived, uh, we live in very novel lifestyles, and they're having a very, very bad effect on our brains and the rest of our bodies. For example, if you look at our diet, and uh, the American diet is sort of similar mm-hmm. to the Australian diet. It's not very good. High in fat, high in salt, high in sugar, and it's causing huge problems to the American people. And uh, as most of us know now, in prehistory, humans had a high omega-3 intake in comparison to the omega-6s. Omega-3s were from wild animals of course, from marine life, all kinds of marine life, but also from terrestrial animals. And the ratio between omega-3 and omega-6 was 1 to 2 to 1 to 3. Now, the ratio between omega-3 and omega-6 is 1 to 20 to 1 to 40. Now, that's a huge problem because we also, it seems, humans became dependent on high omega-3 intake, which also protected your brain. And it probably aided and assisted in the evolution of our cognitive abilities. Uh, Omega-3 is a very, very good fat, and a lot of our brain is made of fat. So uh, omega-3 is good for every single aspect of the human body. It's an anti-inflammatory, among other things. But we seem to have evolved to have a very high omega-3 intake, which also protected us from a lot of the mental disorders which we see in modern people. Because we're not taking enough omega-3s, because we don't eat enough marine life, and because we don't eat wild animals, we just eat farm-fed animals with probably low omega-3s, that Mm. because we're having a high omega-6 intake, you know, corn oil, safflower oil, the types of meats we're having, these are basically most of the omega-6s. So... We have got huge inflammatory disorders, which also lead to all kinds of neuropsychiatric disorders. A lot of our disorders of neurodegeneration 
up because of inflammation, as well as okay. autoimmune problems. If you don't have enough omega-3s, you are a sitting duck for autoimmune problems. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So that's why one reason why, a major reason why we're having a lot more mental disorders now because of increasing neuroinflammation. Very interesting. What, um, I mean, do you see any signs of, of, well, where do you see the trends going with human health and human evolution, de-evolution, however you want to call it? I guess in summary, what do you see as a head for the human race for, let's oh. say, the next 20, 30 years? Okay. At the present time, we're creating all kinds of neuroprosthetics. Before I, I saw you, Richard, I was looking at uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink, which is very interesting technology. It's, it's interesting technology, but uh, we're going to see more and more of these devices, uh, more and more mechanistic type neuroprosthetic devices like Neuralink and other types of prosthetic devices they use for people with Parkinson's, etc. These devices hopefully will help people improve their motor skills, particularly if you've got some kind of trauma, a stroke, or a neurodegenerative problem where you can't move. Uh, these brain chips or neuroprosthetics, whatever you want to call them, you will, we will see more and more improvements in sensory. People who have lost their um, pain and temperature sensations, etc. People uh, who can't move, it will offer moderate types of movements for people in this category. For example, uh, the Ipsy hand. In the United States, you can buy this Ipsy hand for people who have been amputated. They've lost um, one of their arms. Okay. And this wonderful technology, you know, you can move this, this arm very much like you saw in the Terminator movies, you know, 30 years mm. ago. This is reality now. And you're moving it with your mind. Okay? It's brilliant. So we're going to see more brain-machine interfaces, and they're going to become smaller and smaller, particularly with nanotechnology. Once nanotech from theory becomes really, really practical, then you would be able to miniaturize these, these uh, neuroprosthetics. Now, from a point of view of neuroprosthetic devices making you smarter, no, that's not going to happen because one thing, firstly, we don't know what intelligence is, and there are different types of intelligences. You know, there is no consens consensus of, on what intelligence is. You know, all That's creatures, yeah, you know, all creatures, all organisms have got some kind of intelligence. The high and the low, all of yeah, them I have got so. some, some kind of sentience or awareness. Mm. In, Buddhism, in Buddhism, it's called sentience. In other words, awareness in the English vocabulary. But we're going to see more and more of these types of neuroprosthetics, which are basically mechanistic. They're, you know, you've got a, you've got a, a computer chip. And it's going to an effector. You know, there's this kind and uh, very much like cochlear implants, but more sophisticated than the cochlear implants. I'm writing an article with my colleagues at the present time, and the, our article is basically saying that because we have relaxed natural selection in our species, it's created all kinds of problems, for example, genetic load, which means that in order to offset relaxed natural selection, we will be more and more dependent on different types of biotechnologies in order to, to live normally. Okay. Well, 
Marcia, this is an area that I would do want to explore more, but we've uh, we've kind of come to the end of an hour, so I, I do need to uh, to head out. But I'd like to have you back with uh, Marchi if we can. Um, yeah, we, for... we can talk more about this 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 notion of future microevolution, uh, mm -hmm. how it, how humans have relaxed natural selection and and the consequences of doing that, and uh, and you know in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, what are we what we may be seeing. Both the good and the bad. Okay, excellent. In the meantime, for listeners, I want them to be exposed to more of your work. What are some places that the listeners can go if they want to find out more about the various projects you've worked on, the papers you've written? Uh, basically, ResearchGate for people who are academics or Google Scholar. I did, I, I did one or two YouTube clips some years ago. I'm interested in animal and human intelligence. Uh, I did a clip called... You know, animals are smarter than humans. Around 2016, you can still get the 12-minute version on that. But uh, if people uh, want to contact me, they can contact me via uh, the, my institutions or whatever. I'm always happy to help, particularly young students in the areas of uh, ecology, uh, medical science, etc. Uh, because the younger students are going to be living through all this future. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, we all, you know, hopefully, you know, listeners will be too. So very good. All right, so your last name is spelled S-A-N-I-O-T-I-S. -I is that correct? That's, that's right. right. Okay. Uh, very good. So listeners can go there to find out more about Arthur. They can Google him. And Arthur, thank you so much for coming. I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Uh, also, Richard, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, if you put okay. Dr. Arthur Saniotis, I've, I've got a website. I don't use it very much, but... Uh, uh, people have got different ways to contact me. Excellent. Arthur, very much. Very good. Thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. Uh, one other thing, Richard. I've got a, a website called seemymind.com. I've written several pieces on it. I've, I've sort of been negligent the last two years, but seemymind, C-M-Y-M-I-N-D.com. And uh, people will be able to access uh, some of the types of blogs I have there. Excellent. Here's some parting words from Self Decode's founder, Joe. In a world of uncertainty, we've got you. Before taking control of my health, I had almost given up hope of the life I dreamed of. Then I realized the answers I needed were inside my DNA all along. Let us help you find yours. Start free with an existing DNA file or use code GENIUS to save 25% on a kit. A healthier life is waiting for you at selfdecode.com. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.